Welcome back to The Hot Dish. We have a special program today talking about the impacts of the clean energy transition in rural America. I'm particularly grateful that we're going to be joined by two guests who are really trying to think about what does that look like and what do we need to do. Joel, why don't you talk a little bit about your guest today and I'll talk a little bit about Ernie. Well, Wade Boshans is uh, one of the leaders when it comes to Summit Carbon Solutions. Now, there are people that look at Summit Carbon Solutions and they think how innovative, how great, because they believe in ethanol. Uh, and they're trying to solve some of the problems of carbon capture because really what they're doing is they're grabbing CO2 from ethanol plants. They're taking it to Western North Dakota and they're injecting it in the ground. When I say they are, uh, that's a stretch because they're not doing it yet. They're trying to do it. And so they're they're going around to farmers trying to get easements to go on their land and they're writing big checks and uh, they're trying to find a way to get uh, some of these ag producers to go along with it. Now, that's not going all cheery. That's not going all that well. And we'll get a chance to visit with Wade about that because, for example, the state of North Dakota just rejected the permit that they would need to be able to do this job. And so there's some real hurdles here, possibly the use of eminent domain and other things. But Heidi, we're going we're gonna to visit with him about that. Well, it's going to be interesting because it, it fits in that bigger narrative about yeah, everybody wants to transition to clean energy, but no one wants it in their backyard. No one wants pipeline. No one wants power line. I mean, and that whole issue about permitting and infrastructure is a critical component, whether it's transition to hydrogen, whether it is taking a look at carbon capture, sequestration. And so I think, you know, these are big issues. But also on the flip side of that, when you look at the amount of minerals that you're going to need to build one EV, and where are those minerals? And are we trading our energy independence that as we look at the shale revolution, which literally drove America to be the number one oil and gas producer in the world, are we trading that for now looking to China to provide those minerals? And so Ernie Scheider will be with me. And we definitely appreciate the quality of his reporting on so many of these important issues. Heidi. This goes way beyond North Dakota when it comes to extracting, when it comes to the tools to extract. And Ernie seems to be an individual that really has his arms around that. Well, I, I think it's interesting because I just saw some recent polling on climate. And again, highly partisan results. Republicans don't think that this is a problem worthy of a lot of increased investment. And Democrats overwhelmingly are saying, you know, the earth's on fire do what you can do. And I thought maybe after this year, when you saw these incredibly hot weather that is in the South and, and really in bands across the country. And then you also saw, you know, the wildfires up in Canada and, and what that's doing to air quality. And yet this highly partisan environment just is not conducive to longstanding policy on all these issues. These issues are tough. And if we don't have a unified idea that we need to get something done, how are we possibly going to navigate that? The whole EV revolution, I was doing some commentary last night and, and you know, thinking about the fact that there isn't a real big demand for EVs. And, and that part of that is people don't want to get stranded without charging stations. They know that there's going to be a gas station every 20 miles, but they don't know where they can charge their car. And they don't want to wait 20, 30 minutes to charge their car. They want to pull into the gas station. And, you know, load up on some gasoline in about five, 10 minutes and be on their way. You know, in the middle of the country, people aren't buying these things. And there's been a lot of 
incentives built and ideas that this incentive was going to drive demand. And that's not what's happening. It's interesting to see the Inflation Reduction Act, the market implications of the Inflation Reduction Act and what that means. Well, and I would add this, that you take like my life. I work in Fargo, but I live 65 miles south of it. Now you're going to say, well, gee, you know, that's 130 miles every day. For me, compared to many of the people listening, it's about the same amount of time as they have through traffic in the urban area. I can make the trek in 52 minutes. That's the best I ever did uh, to my workplace. And that was that was on my Harley Davidson. That's because you know the law enforcement along the way, Joel. They're good people. They are good, good people. But, but you know, here, here's the plain and simple fact. You know, that's 130 miles. And that would take a lot of charge. I think until workplaces provide them to where you park your rig, I don't think it's going to happen. And it's certainly not going to happen up here. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, there, there's big bets in the automobile industry. California is issuing mandates saying everybody within a certain period of time that you won't be able to sell internal combustion engines. And, you know, how do you balance consumer demand? I mean, you, you, consumers are going to revolt and say, look, you aren't living my life. This isn't going to work. This transition isn't going to work. And so, you know, the, the other big story coming out of the Inflation Reduction Act has been the hydrogen hubs. And, and this has been probably one of the more interesting demand-driven aspects of the Inflation Reduction Act. But um, in states like ours, where none of our guys voted for the Inflation Reduction Act, and, uh, you know, Biden gets bashed on a regular basis, but they're all hoping they get a hub. They're all hoping hydrogen comes to North Dakota. Well, and they're all sitting in their garage painting their shovels gold. I mean, they don't, they don't mind going to the press conference. They don't mind looking. They, they never think they're going to get called out as a hypocrite uh, because there's so little media in conservative states that would do that to them. Next is a great opportunity to meet someone who has forgotten more about critical minerals and rare earth minerals than most people have ever known. A reporter with uh, Reuters, Ernie Scheider, who is also a dear friend and has recently written a really important book. It's called The War Below. And it's a book about the challenge of producing enough minerals for this green energy transition. But, you know, I have to confess, I thought this was going to be kind of maybe a textbook on where these minerals are, who owns them, you know, what the process is for extracting them. And that's not what this book is at all. This book is a book about communities. And you went all over the country and telling the story of these communities. Can we start out with the Boundary Waters? Talk about what you learned at the Boundary Waters and how critical that opportunity could be for the you know, kind of the miners up there, the the workers up there, but why it is that the, there's so many dissenting voices in expanding that opportunity. Well, um, Heidi, it's great to be with you and Joel today, and thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Northern Minnesota is just a beautiful space and had a chance to spend, gosh, I want to say about three or four days there uh, going around uh, much of the part of the northern state near um, Ely, Minnesota. And this is an area that has long had mining. It traditionally has been an iron ore, taconite iron ore area. And so you can still drive up from Minneapolis up to the Boundary Waters, and you basically drive right through three giant mine sites. You can see them right in the distance. The dust sort of wafts right across the highway. 
But the further up you go, you get into a really water-rich region, and below all that water sits one of the largest deposits of copper and nickel really in the world. And for years, several different companies have been trying to develop it. And for various reasons, um, whether it was due to low copper prices or due to other factors, they did not mine it. Now, also what's happening at the same time from the 1960s until now is that you've had a really strong outdoor recreation movement really engulf much of northern Minnesota and really the United States. And a series of administrations locked off increasingly large portions of northern Minnesota for any development. And actually right now, much of the Boundary Waters is only for canoeing. So you can't take a motorboat out there, anything that's powered by an engine. And that's really been a huge boon to the region's economy, which attracts fishermen and fisher people from all over the world, canoeists, outdoor enthusiasts, and campers. But that brings us to today. We are at a critical inflection point for our planet. Climate change, as much of the United States and the world is seeing right now, is having a huge impact on, on our world, really. You know, there's 100 degree Fahrenheit temperatures, and it's sparking a really big conversation about how we're going to address this. And for many people, the green energy transition is a way to help abrogate climate change. And that's going to require a lot more copper and nickel. So we see that tension really come to bear in northern Minnesota right now. There's a company called Twin Metals that wants to dig an underground mine to extract the copper and nickel that lies underneath all of that watershed. And the concern is that the type of rock that contains that copper and nickel, when exposed to water, would form acid. And because the boundary waters are connected to the Great Lakes and thus to the Hudson Bay and thus to the Arctic Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean, the concern is that any mine accident, any mine damage would cause irreparable harm to this giant watershed. And so you've got battle lines drawn on both sides. You have a very strong environmental group and very strong conservation group that says, not here, not now, there are better places to mine. And then on the other side, there is the company and its supporters saying, we need to be producing this copper and this nickel and these other metals to help our world fight climate change. And if we don't do it here in the United States, the supporters say, with strong environmental standards, with union talent, then is that us, and by us meeting the United States, implicitly saying we should have miners in the Democratic Republic of Congo dig these metals out of the ground or elsewhere with low ESG standards? There's no easy answers here, and it's a very intractable issue. A lot of the older folks in the community are hearkening back to when this area was a big iron ore mining community. They see things as they were, so they're very supportive of the mine. They want the mine to come back, whereas a lot of the newer entrants into the town are saying, no, our economy now relies on outdoor recreation. So really, the battle lines are drawn on both sides here. If I can just say that the other side, the other side, that the environmental side, the conservation side, that also is the side that is deeply concerned politically with climate change, but it's like, but I don't want it in my backyard. I, I mean, so why is, is extracting copper from the boundary waters any less appropriate than Rio Tinto in uh, Arizona, where indigenous populations are basically challenging the environmental impacts, but also the cultural impacts? And, you know, so many of these communities if they've lived and died by these commodity prices and they've seen it go up and down. And we know that these commodity prices can create huge instability in terms of profitability of the mine. So, and we also know, Ernie, that China has the largest stockpile. They have 
They're sitting on the largest reserves of these minerals, not just in China, but across the globe. And they also have probably the best processing technology. And so when you look at it and everybody says, well, we need to not be dependent on China, that's a, that's a secondary natural security concern, you know, and now we've got the environmental concerns. Think about the arrogance of saying, yeah, we need to do all these things. We need, we need the resources to make this conversion, but not, not in my backyard, not where I want to canoe or where I want to, you know, go hiking or where I want to see a mountain that is undisturbed. And, and so it's really, there's a big ethical challenge to all of this, Ernie. Yes, you mentioned Arizona, uh, Heidi, and I spent a lot of time there with the San Carlos Apache and other indigenous groups opposed to a large copper mine that Rio Tinto uh, would like to dig. And it was really fascinating speaking with opponents of that mining project, having also visited in Minnesota with opponents of the mine that's proposed there by Twin Metals. You know, everyone in Arizona said copper mining requires a lot of water, which is true. And Arizona has been in a drought since the 1990s, which is true. And so they would say, well, go to a place with a lot of water, like Minnesota, and do your copper mining there. And the inverse was true in Minnesota. Everyone in Minnesota that was opposed to this mine said, if this rock gets exposed to water, it will cause acid that could potentially destroy the Great Lakes. So don't do it here. There's a lot of water. Do it in Arizona where that couldn't happen. And I, I found that interesting juxtaposition there. There is no such thing as a free lunch here. And I think there are really tough choices to be made about where, how, and why we as a world want to go green. And I think the twin metal situation encapsulates that. If we can just calibrate for folks who are listening, how much additional demand is going to be driven if in fact we meet the electronic vehicle, the EV standards or the goals that certainly the Biden administration is touting here and California that is now talking about, you know, basically not allowing the sale in California of an internal combustion engine after, what, 2030? 2030 or 25, I believe so. Yeah. So give me a sense of what kind of mineral development you would need to build just one EV. So you would need certainly many, many more lithium mines, copper mines, nickel mines, mines for rare earths, and as well as cobalt mines. And that might sound like a lot of in the weeds, dorky stuff, but um, in essence, all five of those minerals that I just mentioned to you have an extreme importance um, to an electric vehicle. And let's just take copper, since we were speaking about twin metals. An internal combustion engine does use some copper, but because an electric vehicle motor is, you know, basically just a giant electric motor that does not have gasoline as sort of a main uh, fuel source in there, you need a lot more copper. You also need a fast charging network station, which the United States does not have now, which needs to be built out. And so think of every gasoline station across the United States now needing to have multiple electric vehicle charging stations there. That's going to require a ton more copper as well. And inside each EV battery, depending on the chemistry, you'll have nickel and or cobalt. And those are going to be required in vastly larger quantities out there. Rare earths are not as rare as the name implies, but they are typically mined in, in very small quantities. But they're used to make magnets that power electric vehicle motors. They essentially turn electricity into motion. Um, and you, they need to be made with very specialized forms of these metals and minerals. So the quantities for each five of those that I just mentioned will differ depending um, on a battery's design. But we're going to need what the International Energy Agency estimates is just 
eons more here uh, than we have currently in production around the world. And that's going to require a lot more production even before recycling starts to really take over en masse, what's known as the circular economy. When you really read your book and you really think and, and, and do a little research on critical minerals and how much the build out of that supply chain will be necessary to make this conversion, I keep thinking, maybe we need to go to compressed natural gas with back-end carbon capture. Maybe we should be looking more, more thoroughly at hydrogen as an opportunity. I mean, let's think about what the alternatives are and not just put all of our eggs in that basket of EVs, which could, in fact, disrupt rural communities, many fragile kinds of structures that you have and balances. Every place that you went, you found people in your book, you found people who, you know, believed in this uh, build out and you found people that had very legitimate reasons to say, no, that is not something that we need in our community. And so, you know, in the few minutes that we have left, Ernie, has anybody really had a conversation about alternatives? The short answer is is no. I mean, I think electrification is seen as the way right now by the cultural zeitgeist to address climate change. But, but what that means, I think, means different things to different people. And so I think we need to be having a collective discussion as a society, as a world, about what that means for us and what are the trade-offs that we're willing to make. I think too often we just show up to the store and expect things to be there and don't think through the value chains behind that. And what I really hope folks come away with with this book is the need for the conversation, really, and the conversation about how these different communities across the United States, across the world, are impacted by these decisions that really power our global supply chains and our daily lives. Well, Ernie, the book's coming out in January. It's called The War Below. It is absolutely fascinating. I just urge everybody who thinks that this is easy, that all, all we have to do is damn the oil companies and, you know, drive them out of business and that will solve our problem. They need to read your book. Well, thank you very much, Heidi. Really appreciate your time and great to be with you today. We're joined by uh, Wade Bashans. Wade is the executive vice president of Summit Carbon Solutions. The company's been uh, hard at work on a plan to build the largest carbon capture and storage project in the world, making ethanol a net zero fuel by 2030. Obviously, ethanol huge uh, in the area where I live and uh, here in the Midwest, but the proposed pipeline does have some people upset. And so we appreciate Wade coming on. And it's probably best, Wade, for you to describe the project itself mechanically, where it goes, how it works. Sure, absolutely happy to do so. And, and thanks for having me on here, Joel. What the project proposes to do is to capture CO2 emissions from ethanol plants across a, a five-state area and other industrial sources. We're working with fertilizer plants as well. Capture that CO2 at the plants, compress it, and then transport it via pipeline, all new construction to Western North Dakota for injection and permanent storage into deep subsurface formations, roughly one to two miles below the surface. Wade, I have to ask you, why is carbon capture so important to the environment and for what we're doing in the, in the country and what the goals we have? Sure. Uh, great question. There's a number of reasons why I think it's important to North Dakota, beyond just call it reducing CO2 emissions. 
One is it allows us to continue to participate in the markets, what I believe are the markets of the future, which are lower carbon. So we're seeing a lot of pressure for lower carbon energy, right? And so I think we get a lot of, you know, kind of back and forth about, call it the, the climate science and the climate politics. I think the science is quite clear that the, the climate is warming and that CO2 emissions are contributing. And so if we're going to address that, then we're going to have to use CO2 or carbon capture and storage as a, a tool to address climate change. And so it's critical for those ethanol plants to be able to continue to operate and compete in the, in the market of today and the growing market of the future to reduce their carbon emissions. Is there any other example of this amount of, of carbon being injected into a reserve? I mean, should people who maybe don't understand really what you're doing at the end of this project, should they be nervous? Yeah, so there's you know, a couple of examples out there, not at the same scale that Summit is at. So you have the ADM project in Decatur, Illinois. They've been capturing and sequestering CO2 from their ethanol plant there in Decatur since 2014 when they first started. They're a little over a million tons a year. Our projects at full capacity is is 12 million tons. And so that's the, the closest parallel. There are a number of other CO2 capture and injection projects, including in the Williston Basin, just north of the border. Who owns it after you inject it? If it becomes worth something, if it becomes of value, I mean, who who owns the CO2 that you put into the ground? Yeah, so Summit will retain title to the CO2 once it's injected. We hold the title and the liability for the CO2 once it's underground. Highly unlikely that we would you know, and, and all uneconomical that we would uh, reproduce it. But we would need additional agreements with the landowners to allow us to you know, ultimately bring it back to the surface, separate it from formation fluids, and use it for another purpose. When you look at, at where you're putting it into Western North Dakota, what science went behind this being a place where you can, you can put that reservoir? Sure. Excellent. Great question. Why did we select that site? because we were highly confident we would find favorable geology, after which we went out and drilled three of our own stratigraphic wells to further characterize that specific site. So that was the primary driver, is we knew there was good geology. There was likely good geology in that, in that location, and ultimately we selected it. And lastly, and additionally, I would say we selected the site because there was no previous oil and gas development in the area. And so if you think about CO2 storage, and the potential for a leak, the, the most likely leakage pathway would be through an existing or previous wellbore, that penetration of the reservoir. Because there were none, that was another attractive element of the specific location that we chose. Speak to me about the fact that the North Dakota PSC did reject your permit application. PSC did uh, you know, reject our permit application last week. It was surprising uh, and disappointing, but uh, nonetheless... You know, the PSC, you know, had their, had their reasons and they identified them, you know, to us in, in their order and, and were we working to, to address them and, and move forward. When you look at some of the money these farmers make, some of the best price they ever get is for a bushel of corn from an ethanol plant. They can lock it in, they get it. There's a reason semis are stacked to 20 deep every day trying to get corn to them. When does the ethanol plant deal themselves a hand in all this? Because it seems to me that you're out there taking the slings and arrows, and the ethanol plant is one of the individuals that is getting a lot of the benefit out of this. And the farmers like the ethanol plant. 
So when do they deal themselves a hand and go out there and talk to farmers about it? Well, in many cases, our ethanol plant partners are educating or talking to the farmers around how this is important to their industry. So I don't want to say that they're, they're not doing it, but certainly, you know, the ethanol plants and the ethanol industries are a huge beneficiary and ultimately by extension than the farmers that are selling corn and delivering to it, to that plant. I mean, in North Dakota, over half of our corn crop goes to one of our five ethanol plants, right? It's a really big deal. And I go back to when I, you know, I grew up on the family farm north of Beulah. I didn't go back to the farm. At that time, corn was $1.50, $1.70 a bushel. I come back to North Dakota after being out of the state 12 years later, and we're selling corn for four bucks. And the farmers are doing great, right? That's what happened in the meantime. The ethanol industry emerged. And so it's really brought, uh, you know, raised commodity prices and land values. And so clearly what we're doing is a big benefit in sustaining the uh, ethanol industry to the farmers and ranchers and the price of land and value of land in North Dakota. I think most people get that. But they get hung up on, on other things, right, around, you know, property rights. They're really strong property rights advocates and the fact that there could be right, you know, access to eminent domain and things like that, you know, really cause them to say, I don't care about the value that this project brings. I'm, you know, it's philosophical in nature. But generally, when we get to the table, table with people and have open and honest discussions, I think we, we make great progress. Who owns Summit Carbon Solutions? So Summit Carbon Solutions has over 450 investors. Some of them are individuals, some of them are companies, some of them are funds. And so we have investors who have announced their investment, like John Deere, Continental, TPG, SK Group. So if you think about, you know, Summit's investors, in total, there's about $1.1 billion that have invested into the company. And it comes across the board from a variety of different categories of investors, including our ethanol plant partners uh, that, that have all invested in the company. Last one. Are any of these foreign entities? SK is a South Korean private company. They have uh, announced their stake in the company. So they have about 10% of the company, uh, ownership of the company. Again, Korea is one of the U.S.'s strongest allies. So not a foreign adversary uh, by any means. And, and just last year, they announced you know, $20 billion of investment in the U.S. You know, at the White House. And, and so they're long-term partners. And the way they look at this, South Korea wouldn't exist without the U.S. This is the way we pay back, is we work with the U.S. to grow business, trade with the U.S., and to invest in the U.S. And so I think to think about them as a foreign adversary is really misguided. Wade, get on up here for pheasant season. Hope to see you then. Absolutely. Thank you. You bet. Appreciate you coming on The Hot Dish. Appreciate it. Well, Joel, we had two guests on today that tell us something really important about rural America. Number one, the impacts of the Green Revolution are going to be felt disproportionately in rural parts of our country, whether it's in mining, whether it is in pipelines. And the irony of that is that's probably the most suspicious group of people about the need to do the transition. And so should come as no surprise to people that there is a huge debate about building out infrastructure for green technologies. The other thing I think is I hope people understand and appreciate that as we work through kind of the societal community discussions and, and conflicts, that these are really, really complicated and that you don't just point the finger at one side or the other, 
that you basically try and listen to both sides. And as Ernie has said over and over again, and even when you do that, how incredibly tough it will be to resolve these conflicts in a way that everybody feels heard. Well, to, to some degree, we deserve having to be part of that conversation because we produce oil, we produce uh, gas, we, we produce coal. I mean, all of those things are right here. So if we're going to have a serious discussion about it, I think it's up to the Midwest to, to really be part of the solution and to be able to understand it. You know, instead of just look at it financially, actually look at it from a bigger picture, Heidi. And I think that's going to take more one-on-one. I think it's going to take leadership from local government. I think that it's going to take a whole lot of people actually delving into subjects that uh, folks don't understand. Yeah, and to everyone who is listening, understand that these are communities that are going to have huge impacts, huge changes. Yeah, we'll work through it, but it's, it's complicated. It is incredibly complicated. And some of the legacy problems in places like Rio Tinto and and the Boundary Waters have to do with past behaviors of mining companies and not taking care of business, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And now communities are saying, I don't want to trust you again. I don't want to I don't want to deal with this. At some point, you got to speak to them as a group. You got to go to the fire hall. You got to go to the VFW hall and say, any and all, I got I got the coffee. I got the rolls. Bring it on. I'm right here. Yeah. We'll continue to see this play out in rural America and across the country, uh, whether it is a wind farm off a, a, a Jersey shore where people don't want to look at it, or whether it is a pipeline um, coming through someone's farmyard, or whether it is, in fact, a mine that is almost a mile deep uh, in the ground, these are, these are incredible challenges. Okay, well, listen, until the next time on The Hot Dish, thank you so much for listening. For more information about the One Country Project, go to onecountryproject.com. See you in two weeks.